Welcome to the Exponentially Me podcast. Have you ever wondered if we can work better, if we get along better, and if leaders can really influence that? In this podcast, these are some of the questions we will be answering. We'll be talking to some amazing people from all around the world, not just thinkers on this, but the doers, giving you practical information that can make you a better colleague and even a better leader. I'm Exin Duval, and like Napoleon, I believe leaders deal in hope. Today, my guest is Mark Durno. Mark is director of AgriFoods at Rockstart. Mark grew up on a farm in Scotland, and like me, being a farm boy taught him a few things. Amongst other things, how the supply chain for food really works. And this is what has become his focus. As director for Agri-Foods at Rockstart, he also makes sure that the right investments go to the right startups to build on what we need for the future for food. Today, we talk about the importance of openness and the need to show vulnerability. How much guidance is too much? And how little is really necessary to create culture that springs up naturally. When we consider people, what is more important, empathy or listening? Mark uses personality profiling to figure out who are going to be those teams that really, really do the trick. But what are the characteristics he looks for? We also talk about the myth of ore and if everything does need to be perfect or not. I hope you enjoy listening to Mark. If what you say, leadership is a relationship, or leadership as a relationship, what does that bring to mind for you? Well, the, fir- the, the, the first thing that springs to me, or that, that jumps up for me, is the context of that leadership role, um, and the fact that I'm quite often working in startup environments, right? So... I think you can have different contexts for leadership, whether it be political, sports, maybe it's in a corporate environment, but my context for the most part is in a startup environment. And as a personal relationship, there's no other way for that leadership to be because you're working under quite a lot of pressure, both, uh, both practically speaking, you know, you might have a very, very short cash runway, which is all, it's almost always the case in, in, <laughs> in the startup world until you get to being a, a kind of more of a scale-up phase. So there's the practical pressures. There's the pressures around the fact that not everybody's hired for skill set in that situation. So you're leading teams where maybe they're quite junior people who are doing it out of passion, or it could be first-time entrepreneurs, or it could be somebody who perhaps doesn't have the tech acumen but does have the drive to, to go forward. So there's always something lacking. And that really comes through... I think in the in in this kind of leadership relationship, your personalities and who you are, you, you create really close bonds. Most, most of the team members I have, uh, if I think back to Urban Farmers days or Rockstar days or or even the side projects like Edibles and some of these companies that I've been a part of, the, these are quite deep forged friendships that are built because you do have to lean on one another in more of a capacity than just a professional or, or a colleague in that leadership sense. So I think the question, you know, how personal is leadership vary in my context. 
Um, and you also need to be sympathetic to those people in your team, or in my case as well, beyond that, the portfolio companies I work with, because there's there's somewhat of a leadership position there when we're coaching or when we're on the board, for example. We, it's not it's not leadership in the sense of a decision-making role, but it's definitely in terms of coaching and trying to support those entrepreneurs. Also within our broader team within Rockstar, all of those different relationships have got like lots of different pressure points that are coming in that requires you to show a lot of empathy and, and ultimately ends in, hopefully in the best cases, in friendships that are quite long-lasting. So, yeah. Do you also think that we're relation? Maybe, maybe. Ref- can you tell us a bit more about when leadership as a relationship fails? What happens? Oh, um, trying not to jump straight into a, in, into my first reaction on things, but sometimes that's the best place to go. The word that comes up is trust. Um, when leadership fails where the relation of leadership fails there's a breakdown of trust there's a there's a there's a vulnerability there and especially you as 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 a leader or someone who or indeed at times where i'm being led if there has been a breakdown of uh, understanding or or there's been some sort of conflict point the uh, the pain point there is that the, the the trust in that leadership um relationship can break down and that's very that can be very damaging and far-reaching um and you have to remember that in a position of leadership, and this is something I personally sometimes I'm not mindful enough about as well, so I put my hands up there, that in a position of leadership, uh, those people who are, you're, who are leading, you're leading are showing vulnerability. They're your team or they're your startup that you're coaching or they're your mentee. And they, you're asking them to, uh, to trust you in your leadership. So if there's a breach in that relationship, I think it can be quite damaging uh, to, to be an effective team thereafter. And it takes, in my experience, because I have experienced it, it takes quite a long time to uh, rebuild those channels. Um, and of course, like any good relationship, you know, you think about a long-term relationship, a friendship, a marriage, uh, a parent-child relationship, there will be conflict points. And uh, the, the good ones, you're able to repair those channels and come out the other side stronger. So there is another side to that as well, which is that if you breach that trust part as in a leadership relationship, you've got an opportunity to go in and really dig deeper and say, actually, no, this is really important to me that I, I rebuild this trust, that I rebuild this leadership relationship with this person. And then you come out the other side, a, a, a much more resilient uh, relationship. Basically. Yeah. When we look at, I mean, you just mentioned that, um, like any long, other long-term relationship, it trust is important. What else do you think is important? But what are, what are the stuff that you would look for um, off the bat if you if you look for within startups to see if a team is going to work? Mm. Without a doubt, the first thing is, is openness. Are you open to coachability? Are you open to criticism? Are you open to other points of view and perspectives, both as a, a mentee and a leader or a mentor? Um, both sides need to have that openness, uh, a lack of judgment, an ability to zoom out and look holistically at things. Um, that's That's something that I think is incredibly important and it's something we test for when we're making investments in in the, in the team dynamics as well to find out how what, what are these team dynamics what's the leadership dynamic between the co-founders between the upper management etc 
Um, because if you don't have that ability to adapt and understand a different perspective, you're not going to get very far um, in our experience. Do you think that's something we're born with, that we learn, that we can be taught? For some people, it's just inherent. You know, it's, it's really down, it's that nature-nurture thing, you know, you're, how much of who we are do we just arrive with? And we're like, okay, here we are, and this is one of my personality traits, and how much of it is environmental or experiential? Um, so you can, I, I certainly believe that people are capable of learning that openness and putting systems and practices in place, but some some individuals are just more adept at it. They're just, uh, just, just through their environment, what they've been exposed to, and who they are as an individual. Uh, that's why we do quite extensive personality testing. We do quite extensive kind of interview processes. Uh, we try and work with teams to get to know who the individuals are. When we make an investment, we drill down into the personal motivations of the founders, um, also to help us aid that trust part in the leadership, right? Because if we're going to be a mentor, if I should speak from I perspective, if I'm going to be a mentor or a leader with somebody, you need to understand who they are and where they're coming from, what drives them, what vulnerabilities do they have, so that you can be aware of that when you're trying to create uh, joint goals or when you're trying to steer a conversation together in a certain direction. Um, some people are just more, uh, yeah, they're just they're just better. They just come with that skill. Others, they can definitely learn it. It's just a bit, a bit of hard work needs to go into it. <laughs> so. I think it's, it's one of the things I, I run into as well. When somebody starts at a company, you're employing them with a specific perspective in mind um, or with a specific view. They don't always fit it, but you only realize for maybe some weeks, months, or years later. Yeah. And some of the stuff can be trained and some of the stuff can't. However, the person that arrives is the person that you have. You, you, you don't know their past. You don't know all the ins and outs of their experiences. And one of the things that, that are currently working a lot with is things that are triggered events or coping mechanisms. So from a psychological perspective, it's somewhere something has happened in your past and you learned a way to deal with it. So you have a trigger and then a coping mechanism, and sometimes those things are not beneficial for the context that you find yourself in now. Mm. Um, and you don't see those things in the beginning. There's some of those things you only realize a lot later. Do you guys also work with, with those kind of things, with, with triggers, with coping mechanisms, and helping people understand them? Um, a soft yes is the answer to that. I say soft because I'm no expert at that. I'm not a psychologist and I'm not going to pretend to go into a meeting and, and, and understand the, the, the depths of a, a, a person through a series of conversations. But you can get a good understanding, and especially having worked with hundreds of founders and uh, and also in multiple teams with, with, like I said, different pressure points. You get to see some common traits that are in place. But every every individual is of course, unique in that sense. And within our team, within our internal team now, so looking less about my leadership position um, in, in, towards startups and externals, but looking more internally at our leadership team, uh, we have effectively deployed coaching. Uh, we have effectively deployed mentorship. We have effectively deployed therapy sessions as well, speaking personally, uh, which have allowed me in times of growth, and by growth, that's a nice way of saying I was really stressed out and uh, didn't know what to do. Um, 
I was able to talk those things through and get a different perspective on it. So it comes again back to that openness, that coachability for for a leadership and mentee relationship. And um, I can I'll speak personally, right? So rather than pointing at others as examples, but one of my trigger mechanisms is, Exine, when we were talking earlier, you made reference to the point that I usually get on quite well with people. There's not a lot of people that I don't think there's a lot of people that inherently dislike me or working with me however a lot of that comes from my trigger point that i'm con- i have i'm naturally conflict averse i don't want to enter into a conflict situation and at times that's damaging sometimes you just need to talk it out and you you need to have some hard words that are said you need to, you need to clear the air and put it on the table and as a result of my being conflict averse i can sometimes end up feeling backed into a corner which, which on occasion, on a few occasions, means I, I erupt out of this awful passive-aggressive situation into mm. pure aggression. Um, so, yeah, so through coaching and, and also uh, through some therapy sessions with those coaches as well that we organize professionally through, through work, we're able to kind of unpeel those aspects and figure out where they come from. And as soon as you become aware of it, you're empowered. So now I can kind of feel these tensions when these tensions come up. I'm like, oh, there's going to be a trigger point quite soon. So I can kind of vocalize that to my team members and say, listen, you know that you know what I'm like. I'm don't, I don't really want to have an argument, but it feels like it's heading that direction. So let's just take a breather, call things out a little bit placidly and, uh, and, and reflect on it until tomorrow, next week, whatever. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I do believe that that's very, very helpful, especially when you're in um, these pressure environments that I'm describing, where it's this mix between being a professional environment, but also very personal because it's it's startup. So it's really inherently linked to the individuals who are who are working on the project. Yeah, I think it's a, the, the, the difference is for me is are you the mum or dad or are you the nanny? Mm. For me, a CEO five years down the line, 10 years down the line is the nanny. The founder is the mum or dad. The emotional connection to your baby is much stronger. Yeah. And so I can imagine that those emotions can, can ride high sometimes. Yeah, especially when you're thinking about indiv- about people, right? You know, you ha- you'll know, Exton, you have this uh, these three positions you take in discussion. You're either going to be an adult to adult, which is two people talking as adults rationally to one another, or you can slip into the extremes of personality, which is either a parent, so it means you're either trying to direct or protect, or a child, which just means that you're either trying to defend or rebel. And mm-hmm. because of that emotional context that you just described, which is that founders feel like they are the parent of their startup, you're flicking between these these uh, <laughs> these kind of positions in the conversation. So being aware of that is quite important in the leadership role uh, and, and trying to not allow yourself to fall into one of those groups. Um, that's something I've struggled with in the past, but got better at through practice. Mm-hmm. I think it, it reminds me of something that um, I spoke to Douglas Stone and Sheila Heen about. They, I, I did this training with them on negotiation and mediation at Harvard um, Law. And they, 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 in difficult conversations, the book they wrote, they talk about something called, there's no way of sugarcoating a hand grenade. Mm. Sometimes you need to bring bad news and it's going to hurt. Yeah. Okay. And no amount of sugarcoating or pussyfooting about it, walking around, nothing's going to help. You know, yeah. you just need to get it out. And I think that from a leadership perspective, sometimes that desire not to hurt people mm. um, interferes with 
getting through the the the, the hand grenade moment because you know yeah. there's going to be blood, sweat, and tears. You know it's going to hurt, but you need to make that as sharp as soon and quick as possible, and don't hang in it. Yeah. One of the things I do is when somebody needs to be fired, I just say, you know what, this situation, this is what's going to happen. The process as follows: you're going to leave home for home now. And we'll have a conversation about this mm-hmm. next week, just so that the person has the opportunity to go and reframe how they want to talk, because in the moment, it's just too much. They, they, they're going to say stuff that they're going to regret, and you might respond with stuff that you're going to regret. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's also a power thing, right? If you come into the conversation knowing where you want to take it, you're in design of where that conversation can go. The other person can feel pretty helpless. Um, yes. So I think giving I think that's very respectful. Give them the hard truth straight up front. Let give them time to reflect on it. I'm a terrible one for delivering a shit sandwich. You know, it's like yeah. here's a nice piece of bread. Here's some shit to put in the middle of it, and here's another nice piece of bread. Yeah. <laughs> like that's no. that's that's what I've done in the past. Of course, I, I tend to be much more um, directive about, or try to be much more directive about messages now. But that was a learning curve as well. Um, because because of that power play that you have as a leader, right? You're in the position of power many times, so you need to be respectful of the other person that's in the room and in the conversation. Definitely. I think we see that if you, as a leader, you say something to to a subordinate, you, it, it's like the message hits ten times harder. Yeah. Not just saying something, behaving like I just said the S word. I said shit on a podcast, which is normal at Rockstar. Sorry if I'm not supposed to swear. Um, but that cultural part, like mm-hmm. turn, turning up to a meeting in shorts versus trousers could be a discussion point, right? That message reverberates uh, and, and you can you can see that. So there is a, I guess, a responsibility, I think a responsibility, but at least an awareness you have to have as a leader that it's not just what you say, it's how you're behaving, it's wh- how you're acting, it's what you're wearing, it's, it's everything, you're, you're directing mm-hmm. culture. I think that's also the, the the one on the one hand. The other hand is it's also important to be. I hate the word authentic because it, it, it's sort of been used to death a yeah. lot. Um, but just be yourself. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So if you don't usually go to for, for me my my guys if, if unless we go into a client or we talk to a client. If you normally get up in the morning, you put on a T-shirt, it's okay. I'm not going to berate you for wearing a T-shirt. I mean, there's more important things in life than that. And if you're not wear, if you're not wear, if, as long as you wear underwear and you're sitting down and you've got a shirt on and I only have to look at the top, it's fine, you know? <laughs> just, <laughs> nipple, nipples up. It needs to be, needs yeah. to be professional. So, yeah. <laughs> just, just, just don't, when you get up, I don't want to be exposed to everything in the world. It's <laughs> some sort of covering, it's fine. Just, you know? And um, it, and I think we, we're, the world's changing with that's concerned. We um, even as little as two, three years ago, we the, the, the amount of tolerance there was required within companies was much less. Mm. Um, and at the, on the one hand, the other hand is that the, the compassion levels have seemingly gone up. The irritation levels as well, but that's because of stress, you know. Yeah. And compassionless. I'm going to talk to you about that in a second, but just something else. Hannes, this is a professor at um, RSM. They recently did a meta study where they looked at leadership training. And they actually said that strength training has been shown to have either no effect or a negative correlation with leadership growth. Hmm. Because growth, as you were saying earlier, 
needs an element of pain. It needs yep. an element of self-reflection where you go like, Ooh, you know, and that's what gives us our growth. And it was just interesting that you mentioned that as well. Yeah, we're quite a basic species. We need to bang our head into the wall to figure out that hurts. And watch somebody else do it and be like, that looked like it hurt. But maybe if I try it, I've got a thicker skull or something. And then you, you, you bang your head and you think, yeah, it definitely hurts. I won't do that again. <laughs> so, that's why, that's why I say that it's experiential, environmental. Yeah. It's the thing that informs leadership as well. Yeah. So I can imagine that you've seen startup hit their heads against the same wall. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of walls are, are we talking about? Every wall they can find. <laughs> and sometimes that's really painful i got a piece of advice from a colleague of mine frerick bishop who was um who was uh, my counterpart in the energy uh, transition basically he's looking he works with energy startups and when I, he was he was working with uh with in this capacity with startups before i was so he was mentoring me a bit and i said look what's the hardest thing he said the hardest thing is sitting on your hands and allowing the entrepreneur or allowing the, the mentee to go and figure out the pain point themselves but if you don't do that if you guide them if you protect them and you don't let those individuals to actually find their own pain and hence growth you're not going to create resilient and robust entrepreneurs and it was a great piece of advice because now having done this for a while and and, and worked with multiple founders and companies it's quite often the same wall that we're looking at, you know, and uh, and we all you can say, all you can you can say your piece, and then you have to step back and let them reflect on it, and either go out and triangulate the good ones, go out and triangulate that, and say, oh, I might be able to avoid hitting my head on this particular wall. Um, yeah, but it it can be multiple different things, Xtine. It can be anything from uh, funding strategies to uh, decisions around what to prioritize uh, uh, on product versus commercial. It can be team decisions and hiring where you hire for skill above culture that has an impact of course um yeah you name it they want to they want to headbutt it and find out mm. yeah. yeah do you see a lot of people making that differentiation skill above culture it's a it's definitely a talking point when we we're talking about hiring and and the importance of skill versus culture and in our in my context i can't speak so much about larger corporations and and or government or NGO or anything like that. But in my context of the startup world, you have finite resources. So you really need, as, as a decision maker, you have to decide based on, well, what's what's the bang for the buck here? Not just in terms of ROI, like from a value creation perspective, but what's going to get us through the next hurdle and allow us to stay on this mission. And sometimes you might have to hire skill above culture because you just need to get something done and it's urgent, it's on the roadmap. Having done that and experienced that firsthand, I can say it can be damaging <laughs> because then you've got a cultural fallout. So I can't I can't stress enough how important it is to at the early stages take HR strategy advice, and at the mid stages, as soon as you can afford to bring somebody in who starts kind of working with you as a leader on HR strategy and who to hire when and what profiles we're looking for, and design the system to do it, the the better. Because you, you also get less churn in staff because the team's happier yeah. because they fit and it feels good. and yeah. So since we, since we already introduced the word shit, let me introduce another one. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <Oops. laughs> no, it's all right. Um, when I wasn't want to get the point across, I sometimes tell people a competent asshole mm -hmm. is predominantly an asshole. Mm -hmm. 
course, nobody can work with a person. The, the, over time, the destruction that's caused in your culture, in your, in your ability to be vulnerable, in the ability for people to, to take ownership of stuff and be authentic, it's just so damaging that to regain that can take six months to two years before you have that back, and it takes one wrong person to do that. And so, yeah, I, yeah, I totally 100%, agree. 100%, 100% agree. And that's where coachability comes into it, right? If you, if you can meet people and bring them into your team who are open and coachable, they've got a low asshole gauge, I guess you could call it. <laughs> like, they're, they're, yes. they're able to empathize and, and, uh, yes. and understand the team. Yeah. I think it's, it's something interesting. You keep on using the word empathy, and I would sort of zoom in a little bit on that. Um, <laughs> There's also an asshole tends to be some people that almost have psychopathic or sociopathic tendencies um, in some in organizations. So when you look at corporate culture we, or, or corporate environments, we normally, or in general humans, we look at a triangle, which at the top is the ability to see that people are feeling an emotion. It's mm-hmm. also known as cognitive empathy. On the other hand, we have, let's go this way, on this side we have affective empathy. It's the ability to see not see, but to feel something about it. So otherwise known as give a damn, all right? Mm-hmm. And the other one over here is, is compassionate empathy, which is the willingness to do something about it. So it's the see, feel, do triangle. And people that have, for instance, are on the Asperger spectrum or on um, um, anything associated with that tend to have a difficult time to see. Mm. And then people in the sociopathic, um, psychopathic corner, they tend to not really give a damn. And then the people, and then in organizations in general and corporates, the willingness to do seems to be suppressed. So people go like, yeah, don't be so emotional, don't get involved, you know, all those kind of statements that you hear. Now in startup world, I think those don't get involved would be detrimental to everybody if you don't get involved because the, the whole yeah. organization could fall apart. You know? Yeah. Um, and so if you look at that, if you say, well, this ability, for instance, to see, do you see that some people are better at, at gauging a situation or feeling the situation? And does that help? Yeah, the the short answer is yes. Some people are inherently better. And it goes back to what I said before. It's just a skill that you, you, you know, this nature nurture, you can develop it, but even though you're good, I'm at Rockstar, what we test for and what we look for in our investments is we, we test for EQ. So we want that emotional element to be within the team because just as you described it, it's essential for leadership and being able to take a project forwards. What I've experienced is that you can have people, and I've used myself as an example again because I don't like to point at others, but I consider myself to be to have a fairly inherent or like a natural, em, 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 empathetic. I can I can empathise pretty well, and I can, especially if I'm meeting with a person in person as opposed to over zoom i can kind of read them quite well about how they're feeling and i I like to check in at the start of meetings to say how you're doing and so forth i've also experienced it where i've reached like an empathy capacity where i've gone that i'm having to care so much about all the shit that's going on around me that i don't know what the hell to do about this anymore and i'm i'm giving less of a damn i need to be like way more direct like more direct and i'm sorry I, i have to give less of a damn about what the hell's going on here because we just need to get through this crisis moment that can be difficult, right? Because um, even though you're an empathetic person and you know that skill and your team knows you for it, suddenly there's this other version of yourself that needs to come in to execute things as a leader. 
You can't always be perfectly balanced within that triangle because if you are perfectly balanced within the triangle, sometimes if you've got eight weeks of runway ahead of you and your company's going to fold in eight weeks, and that means everyone's going to lose their jobs in two months' time, then sometimes you have to just put down the empathy bag and go like, EQ can wait just now. We've got some practical stuff to execute upon. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. I kind of went off on a tangent there a little bit, Extine, but uh, I would say, yes, some people are better than others. And usually those leaders are the most effective because they listen to their team. They listen to what's needed. And by doing that, you also listen to the organization. You get to hear the little beeps and dials and the heartbeat of what's going on uh, across different teams much more effectively. So you can say, okay, that corner of the organization is not feeling too hot. We should really look Mm. into why that is and figure out if there's not something within the company that we're doing that's actually making people feel a little bit down or, or, or like they're underperforming in some way. So it's 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 very important, yeah. Do you also know that? Did you know that that ability is genetic? No, I did not know that. Oh. Ability to see people's emotions, what they're feeling, um, has a genetic component. Okay. Um, there's a test called um, cogn- it's called the cognitive empathy test, or the mind in the eyes, as they call it. It's uh, you know Sasha Baron Cohen, the comedian. Yeah. His cousin um, works at Oxford, and he came up with this test in like what, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and they combined that test with 23andMe, the oh, genetics yeah. company, yeah. and yeah. they found the genes involved. And so, but their main goal was to look for, for autism or for Asperger's genes that were involved in that. So, how does that hamper your ability to do stuff? Um, but they seem to have forgotten that there is a bell curve in most statistics. And so when they started looking at the numbers, they realized there were also people that were exceptional at this. And then they started looking at the genes on that side. And so they figured out that if certain genes are present, I like to call it a super seer is born. Somebody that has this ability where they can articulate your emotions even before you know it. Wow. I also call it the Donna effect. Have you ever seen, do you ever see this TV series Suits? Uh, I, I know it, but I I, I'm afraid okay. I've not there's, watched it. There's, a, there's an assistant or a secretary in there called Donna. Yeah. And um, Donna's claim to fame is she knows what you want before you do. And ah, these people cool. can actually do that. And I, yeah. I, I sort of took it with a pinch of salt till I employed Elena. She's the clinical psychologist we're working with. And Elena has that. Elena tests it off the charts on this. I mean, so it's like, amazing so when i put her in a room she just tells me okay when you said that that person was upset about it this person liked it you know she can just just seize it it's like it's like a it's like an open cat book to her you know yeah. i'm like seriously yeah. all right the other thing that i've that, that i've come to realize is the moment that or not realize that some studies were done is that the moment you talk your ability to observe is switched off it's not that it becomes less, it is switched off, all right? So leaders that talk a lot don't hear a lot, not because they're talking, but they can't observe. They can't even read faces. You know, all this stuff just sort of switches off. The emotive side switches off. You don't observe that. So these days I tell people, make sure that you have at least one Donna in your company. Somebody is going to come tell you you're being an ass yeah, yeah, and people yeah. are picking up on that. You know? <laughs> uh, absolutely. I've, I've also been in teams where we've said, right, the CEO actually is never leading a meeting because they need to observe just what you said. If you're sending the whole time, of course, there are times when the CEO in the leadership position has to stand up and direct the, the, the vision or, or 
the, the milestones of the company, whatever, inspire. But quite often the actual conversation, it's better, it's, it's better to be in an observing role and, uh, and be able to, to read the dynamic between the team or the individuals. But I didn't know that about it being genetic. Now I'm almost tempted to go and get a little blood test done and figure out where I am on that spectrum for it. <laughs> <laughs> what you could also do is if you do the mind in the eyes test, um, the, if you score above about, I think it's 34 out of 36, then there's a high probability of you having that gene. These two sides to it. The one is the ability to see, right, and then the ability to feel and do and so on. But the other side of it is what motivates me, what drives me. And as we go through life, we build these structures, and the brain structures are built as we go along. We, it's not like we have a saying that go like, don't build that bit, you know. Um, but when we start hitting sort of like late 20s, um, that is mainly formed, also the way that we look at relationships. Mm. So we see that motivation is also tied in with that. So when, let's say, 25 with a year or two sort of, um, let's call it standard deviation on there. But from that point on, we tweak. We don't form stuff anymore. It's sort of, I don't know if you ever heard of neural pruning. Um, yeah, but I'm not going to pretend I know Okay, let's, uh, let's, let's make it really simple. Yeah. Because, I mean, we have people that's going to be listening and they can't see my hand. So um, I have to also, let me explain this. So imagine two parts running next to each other. Mm-hmm. When we want to strengthen them, we build little side tracks between them. And when we go like, yeah, they're, they're actually not related, we get rid of the parts in between. Mm-hmm. So eventually when we're, when we're really young, so when with babies, you, you get all these pathways, like a forest full of pathways. And then as you get older, especially in your teenage years, this pruning starts. Um, mm. And you start getting rid of stuff that yeah. you're not using. So now you start thinking faster, up to 3,000 times faster. But you're thinking in patterns, you, predetermined patterns, because yeah. you got rid of the ones in between. And so now you've got highways instead of paths, but if something happens on that highway, it can be quite detrimental. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> running at 3,000 3, times the speed into an obstacle is a little bit more difficult than taking a small little path around it. And so traumatic events and things like that can really impact our ability to think and concentrate about things. But anyway, that's a sort yes. of the basic principle. There's also things within our brains that help us build those pathways. So, for instance, there's something called misophonia. Uh, misophonia is where you get angry when somebody opens a crisp packet mm-hmm. or chews with their mouth open. Your anger center in your brain has more pathways between the anger and specific frequencies that you might hear or the auditive side of your brain. Mm-hmm. So you end up with going from... Being happy-go-lucky to not just mild annoyance but full-on anger without understanding why. Mm. And then you go like, yeah, but people chew too loudly or people this or people that. And, but it's, it's actually just a set of frequencies that, are, that trigger this for you. The moment you know this, you just go like, ah, okay. That's happening. And so like you were saying earlier about coaching, that awareness, just being aware that something is there can already start modifying what we do. And so I was talking about how we develop, and one of the things in that is motivational drivers. So when we look at things we enjoy doing, it's not a task. It's usually a group of activities or a specific perspective. So, for instance, for me, the thing that motivates and drives me the most is creativity. That doesn't mean I'm going to sit there with a sketch pad and draw a tree. 
yeah. it means I can look at a process and try and find a different approach to it. And specifically stuff that hasn't been solved before. You know, that's the kind of stuff that I really like sinking my teeth into. So if you if you think within the environment of startups, do you think there are certain motivators or drivers or things that is inherent in people that you look for or that you see makes people more successful? Mm, good question. Gosh. It's such a broad so if I try and narrow it down, what we're looking for is this internal drive or passion for the thing that they're working, that the, the individual is working on. In, oftentimes, there's one thing that's on a slide deck. They're saying the mission is this. And if you get talking to the founders, it's actually something completely different. It's, it's normally linked to some collision course that you described before, that you've been on that superhighway and then you've hit some trauma and then you've gone, oh, I need to solve this. And actually it ends up getting, it spills over into to the activities that you do in life and, and, and how you approach things. Um, so yeah, we do test for it. We don't ask upfront every founder, we need to know what is your driving motivation underlying all this stuff. Because mm -hmm. actually to get down to that, you, you, you require some trust and you need to go through some, some hours of working together to, to get to that conversation. So we don't block an investment before, you know, like it's not like we need to hear that and be convinced of it before we uh, invest. But when we're working with a startup, what we will look for and what we get good at because we're working with so many early stage uh, uh, founders is recognizing those individuals who have got some tenacity. You need to have resilience in place. You need to be dogged about the mission that you're on. You need to have... Um, uh, creativity is very important because how are you going to solve the problems that come up every single day? Because they will. You're you're building you're building the thing as it's operating. So, um, so yeah. To, to, so we we try and look for it as best that we can through uh, through wisdom of the crowd. We usually have founders meeting with multiple mentors and investors in our network first and getting feedback about how they experience that. We do these uh, personality profiling. We work with a, a company that's that we've been working with the same consultancy company who specialize in HR since 2010 to try and test for these things and see where there are patterns. And then eventually you get to the point where there's an investment made and then there's enough trust in place that we can go, yeah, but what really drives you? <laughs> What's the thing that's really pushing you forwards? And the, when we made a great choice, it's usually usually there's some really core motivation that links back to their childhood or or to some experience or injustice. Quite often that comes up that there's a, mm -hmm. a fight for some sort of new new, new way of doing things that it's going to solve an injustice they've experienced. Um, that's when it gets quite exciting because you think, okay, this person's mission is really built into them as an individual. They're going to carry this forwards no matter how hard the obstacle. And then you know you've also got the the, the bones at least of a really strong leader because that kind of passion and that kind of motivation kind of it rallies the troops and 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 people can get behind it so you yeah and then and, and of course then you have to start training for the the type of leadership you know at different stages of the startup's journey it requires a different type of leader and not all of those people who have got tenacity resilience passion driving personal motivation are the right people to scale a company from 30 to 300 um, yeah. then you need a different type of, of, of leadership personality. But maybe now I'm jumping ahead of myself. So. Within the executive functions, you've got planning and prioritization. Planning is the sequence of events, mm -hmm. and prioritization is making selections to be able to determine what needs to happen first and what needs to happen second. So part of that planning is also the ability to oversee what needs to be done in sequence and that are related to each other. 
When it comes to organization, it has to do with people and and planning. So how many different things are needs to be organized together to get to to a desired outcome? And if I remember correctly, what you were saying is that people struggle to see beyond the immediate, but that also means long-term planning mm. seems to then suffer. Yeah, in certain circumstances. So, of course, everything's really subjective there. So, But, but in, in a startup environment where you're under duress on multiple different factors all at once, there can be a tendency to focus on what's urgent and important only in in. in as the leader, as the person who's who's in charge of making the decisions, and uh, especially where, as we spoke about before, you might be suffering from some un, some extreme stress, right? So if your cortisone levels are up and you're struggling to to make strategic choices, and everything seems to be coming at you all at the same time, there's a there's a um, it can be tempting to choose to work on what feels most urgent and most important. And the important thing I was the point I was trying to put across there was that within the startup environment, at least, uh, it's really important to be able to zoom out and look holistically. It sounds very obvious. It sounds really obvious when you say it just now in a calm setting. But when you're when you're firefighting day to day to make sure that you can keep this thing afloat and make sure you sign the first pilots and make sure you get that first investor on board, um, then it's a very different set of circumstances. You're in the fight. And when people are swinging at you, you you kind of def- you, you you're either defending or attacking, and not really taking a moment to sit back and think about strategy again. So it's 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 a very obvious statement that I'm making, but it's one that quite often founders find themselves in a tough spot because in an individual, you've got all of this stress landing on you as the as the founder or as the CEO of a, a, a kind of high tempo, high octane uh, project that you're trying to lead and usher in a good way. I think it's. It, it, I think what, one thing is there's two things that, that I find important there. One is that it has to do with keep, so organization has to do with keeping track of physical and and, and um, mentally of um, and physically of things that are happening. Mm-hmm. And when you feel overwhelmed, that becomes difficult. So I can imagine that when you're in a really tough spot and really under stress as a startup um, founder, that it can feel sometimes overwhelming. Um, I was just wondering, what do you guys do about that? I mean, hmm. it, how do you how do you get a, a founder out of that tough spot? You, um, I, I got a good. I, I went I went to one of my mentors uh, a number of year a couple of years ago, uh, who's an experienced VC in this space, um, and he he had this to say to me because I said, "Look, it's overwhelming. I've got so much stuff coming over my desk, and and of course, I, I want to be able to set a good example to the the, the founders that I'm working with." He's, his advice to me was you have to get rid of the, the, the myth of or. There's no longer, the word or no longer exists for you. You don't get to do this or that. You have to do this and that. And you need to learn that you have to do this and that. Two things or three things or four things multitasked to the best of what's required. Not everything has to be perfect. The 80-20 rule needs to be applied voraciously. Uh, and you need to take fast and informed decisions. And then live with those decisions because the outcome of the decision is, of course, the reality that you then have. So don't ruin past decisions that maybe went in the wrong direction. You need to keep on looking forwards and and trying to zoom out as often as you can to make sure that you can course correct later. Um, but but the idea that you can, like as a founder, the the idea that you your life is going to be more peaceful in a startup environment is is not true. 
it's if you want mm. to have quiet easy life or, or or not easy life but if you would like to have a structured week where you're not getting called up on Friday evening with uh, with something that needs to be solved, do not start a company because yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. that that's really the reality of it. Is that it because like it goes back to the very first point that we were making in this discussion, which is that the professional and the personal just get merged, they get intertwined because this is something that you're passionate about, and you as an individual, you have to lift far more than uh, than, than than the average um, person. And just to just to clarify, I don't want to gra- like. I don't want to make it sound grand that there's some sort of kind of martyrdom or her, like a heroic thing about it. It's not. You're really silly. Your health's going to be a lot better if you find a, a job that gives you structure and protection. Um, but it, but generally speaking, that's what we. That's but these are the kind of conversations that we'll have. Yeah. I think it's something I want to highlight. There is that um, you're talking about this ability to make decisions and then move on. Um, there's a book called The CEO Next Door, which mm. talks about four different characteristics of great CEOs. And one of those is make decisions and move on. Um, and the other thing is that, that I'm going to paraphrase it, but it's basically learn to dance in insert uncertainty. Because you will have to have light touch and move forward instead of getting completely absorbed and be the subject matter expert. You, you very quickly step off that when you're yeah. in a leadership position. Yeah. And, and then the support, the support structures around you. One of the things that gets cortisol under control or helps to influence it is something called oxyt- oxytocin. And oxytocin is our relationship drug or a, a relationship hormone. And one of the ways of getting that is just getting it from a hug. Mm. So when I found that out, I just um, went to my better half and said, you know what? When I get up in the morning, I don't care what you do, but the first thing I want is a hug. (laughs) (laughs) And strangely enough, during COVID, that seems to have helped, you know. (laughs) hasn't solved the problem, but it seems to have helped. Um, And so those relationship bonds that we have, there are different ways of triggering it. One of the ways we trigger it is with um, small acts of human kindness, but non-reciprocal acts of human kindness. So the simplest form of that is up in your neck of the woods, get somebody a cup of coffee mm. or even better, get them a cup of tea, right? Of tea, or, a, yeah. or a glass of a, a, a nip of something, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> something a wee bit stronger. Yeah, a wee bit stronger. It's, it's one of those things where you just give somebody something and it's really weird if they gave it back to you. So it's yeah. non-transactional. So a cup of tea um, or a glass of whiskey or a glass of water, it doesn't really matter. It's just that act of giving. And the person receiving it gets a bit of um, that oxytocin, but also the person giving and the person observing, which is something we tend to forget. So when teams see that they're doing nice things for each other, it triggers more nice things being done, which means the oxytocin release gets into sort of an exponential growth. Um, And that really brings people closer together. And it's, it's a simple thing. But we've seen in teams that are really under duress and stress in corporate environments that that works. Well, it, it, it's an interesting one now in current times when we, I mean, our organization is remote first. So everybody, like I'm currently in Scotland and um, many of my team members are spread across Denmark, the Netherlands, Portugal, France, Spain, Russia. Uh, we've got portfolio companies um, who I've never even met in person. Uh, who, who we're working with here. So th- what you're saying is quite interesting because indeed, usually in the office, you would be able to turn around to a colleague and say, I'm going to get a cup of coffee. Would you like one? Or or do some, some 
some small act of kindness. Now we've had to be a little bit more thought, uh, thoughtful and strategic about how we do that. So that means, uh, for example, sending out goodie bags to all of the team members you know, we had like a, an online kind of tasting course. We had another uh, little session where a goodie bag was sent out for one of the alignment meetings just so that we could all sit and share a packet of crisps together. Um, mm. uh, and, and we were still talking about the same stuff. It was still a strategy meeting about the, the business. But of course, it takes far more coordination to try and stay connected. Um, and I do find, I think it depends on the personality, of course. Some people really enjoy the remote first environment because they can determine their own time very well. Others feel disconnected. I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh, I kind of miss, when, when I, I, I notice my energy levels jump up dramatically when I get to engage in person with the team and sit mm. down and have a conversation and read them properly, as opposed to having a transaction online. Because it's quite often, yeah. you know, you have a in, in leadership as well. It's really difficult not to just turn it into a transactional conversation because you're just optimizing for time efficiency and to actually make time yeah. to to understand how people are doing, where they're at. It's, it's it's difficult. It's a difficult balance. I think what's what what's what is in works to the benefit of leaders. However, is one we we talked about earlier in the conversation about the amplifying effect of leadership. So the moment you're sitting in, 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 a, in a role where you have a leadership role, the impact of what you do has wider repercussions mm -hmm. and stronger repercussions. Um, one of the bits of research was done about fairness in companies was that time is the great equalizer. So it is not about doing something for one person, something else for another. That's usually not where the fairness is perceived. And, and from an HR perspective, we, we tend to have been bombarded with do everything the same for everyone because that is fair. But the real fairness is perceived in time. So how much time does a leader spend with someone? And if you spend more time with people that are underperforming, you're in essence rewarding bad behavior. Mm. So what you also see now with COVID is that the time you take out of your day just to call someone and check in and see how they're doing, that becomes the new act of kindness. Mm. Yeah. And when people start talking about that and said, oh, it was really nice this morning to have that call for 15 minutes just to check in, and they mention that in the meeting, all of a sudden you get that group effect as well, yeah. especially if everybody gets it. But you can't call one person and not another. No. Yeah, and I think it also needs to be a, a spontaneous act. It can't, we, we tried it in the organization where we were scheduling coffee check-ins. So you had this, mm -hmm. this app on Slack. I don't know if you've come across it called Donut. So you have these Donut meetings mm -hmm. and it just randomly pairs people up. Um, it didn't, it, some, some people really liked it because you, you got randomly paired with somebody so you would have a chance to have a cup of coffee and a check-in. But for the most part, it felt a little bit insincere because there, yes. you were kind of forcing this social aspect to your day as a po and, and, and having a, a framework pushed down on top of you as opposed to mm. having a colleague reach out and say, how are you, Mark? Or how are you, Eckstein? You know, yeah. how are you coping with stuff? So I think it's also the framing and the way it's brought is really important. It needs to be brought in a human way and not in like, Correct. okay, this is, uh, this is, this is going to be good for our, our office vibe. Uh, scoring. <laughs> yeah. Everything that's done from the company yeah. has does not have the personal feel. Yeah. The thing, one of the things we're working on now as well is one of the tips is has to do with what we actually learned from hostage negotiations. Hmm. When you establish rapport with a hostage taker, 
you need to do that with very limited communications means. means so it's usually just a telephone line. So one of the tricks that Chris Voss talks about is I was lucky enough to be in class with him at, uh, when I did this one thing course at Harvard, and it was just amazing to see him in action. He's, he's really good where that's concerned. But anyway, he was the lead hostage negotiator for the FBI, and one of the things he writes about in his book, um, um, Never Split the Difference, is about how to establish that rapport. And there's two elements. The one is only ask how and what questions. Mm-hmm. Open-ended, of course. Um, and then when you paraphrase or summarize what the person says, there's content and there's emotion. And always label the emotion. Mm. So that sounds, da, 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 whatever the situation is, sounded, that sounds really frustrating or sounds like you're struggling, struggling with this. The moment you start doing that and you ask the what and the how questions, it establishes rapport. And his check for it is if the person says that's right – then you know you've established rapport. If they say you're right, it's a case of yeah, 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 you're right. Bye, you know, and trying to get rid of you. Mm. And so this is a little trick we're now sort of trying to teach leaders: is say, make the phone call. So you can easily do that. You send them a WhatsApp and say, listen, do you have five minutes? And just say, ask the what and the how questions, and and summarize and go like, that sounds frustrating, or. It sounds like you're having a great day or just label the emotion because the moment we add that, it becomes, instead of facts, it becomes a personal conversation. Yeah, that's a strong insight, definitely. Yeah. So that's something I think that people can also use and try out. You were, we were talking about the, the stress and the duress and stuff like that. What I was also wanted to say is um, how, does, how does personal relationships get affected by startups? I definitely, I definitely see that on, when there's two entrepreneurs, I'm generalizing a little bit here, but when there are two entrepreneurs, and I was ta- so I was talking to a, an entrepreneur friend of mine the other week, and we were speaking about significant others when you're an entrepreneur, and the, the fact is that you're you're so committed to the project and the, the your your time constraints they are and the the stress and and the and also the achievement and the, the celebration that comes alongside it is, is is such a roller coaster ride that um, it makes it very difficult for a significant other to sometimes to fit into that schedule right it's it's it can be hard you have to prioritize them which I have not always been the best at doing and um, we were talking about the fact that we observed that the successful relationships in in our culture, in startup culture, usually consisted of two entrepreneurs. So mm-hmm. when you when you got the phone call saying, "Look, I can't come in tonight because something's happened at work, or I need to go to this conference, or I've got a sudden last minute investor call, or whatever," the other significant other, who is also an entrepreneur, would be very understanding of it because it's almost like, "Okay." Got it. I understand the, the the reason and the drive, and also this is a little credit point for me because I'm pretty much going to do this to you at some point. <laughs> so you have like this kind of mute. Um, another way to think of it is that you've got a, a bank account with one another, and if you keep on withdrawing and you don't put anything in, you end up in the overdraft, and and that mm. becomes dangerous in the relationship. And I think where you've got two entrepreneurs, or it doesn't have to be two entrepreneurs, it can be two people who are are who have got as. Um, uh, a, a really targeted uh, focus on a specific subject. One one person could be a researcher that's really into their uh, into their postdoc, and another person could be starting a company or an NGO or something. Where you've got that um, that balance, it work. I observe that it works better. Um, 
again, I don't really want to generalize because it's so, so subjective to the individual. And I haven't, I haven't, I'm not an expert on this. I can only talk from my own perspective, which is that my relationships across the board have suffered because of my own, um, my own, yeah, I, I'm really resilient. I'll prioritize the project or the, the mission that I'm on above many things. So that means friendships, means love relationships, means all sorts of things, family members. Mm. And luckily for me, many of those people are very understanding. Um, yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely difficult. And from my, from my hubby and I, it's been the same in that um, he has a very demanding job. Um, and he works now, especially now, he works from sometimes meetings start at 6 o'clock in the morning and um, 7, 8 o'clock at night he's still busy because there's China all the way through to the U.S. that he deals with. And so we've, we've sort of found it's, it's handy to reserve time. Mm -hmm. So, okay, that is dedicated us time. And we just go for a walk. Yeah. And the thing is now with COVID, we be, we, we're in lockdown and you can sort of block your time around lunch. It's just been nice to block the time and just go for a walk during lunchtime. And the rest of the day is everybody else's, but have half an hour just for each other. I, I think that's one thing that's helped us. The other thing is um, financial stress. Mm -hmm. So when one person creates stability and has a, f a full-time job that pays for everything and the other, other person's income does this, it makes life a little bit easier in that you don't have to worry about, am I going to be able to pay the mortgage in the month kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And I think that creates from for, for I mean I'm slightly older, so it's 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 um, I'm also not twenty, willing to live in a flat above a pizzeria kind of thing. You know, that's um, I think I'm wondering, do you also see that older entrepreneurs have a different approach than people in their twenties? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's why the majority of successful startups come from people in their their forties. Um, it's because it comes down to experience. You, you you have a much more rounded understanding of the world. You have you've banged your head against that wall that we spoke about earlier and learned a few lessons. Um, you've probably met people and surrounded by yourself by people who are there for the long haul. So that means that you don't have this like wide berth of friendship pool that you're 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 trying to coordinate. And instead, you've got maybe two or three core friends or you know i can i can generalize about a few of these points but um what we tend to see is that more mature entrepreneurs are just more like more senior entrepreneurs are just a bit more mature in their outlook because they've had the benefit of experience um saying that of course you get really talented people in their 20s who are driven and have energy and are taking measured risks that you might not want to take if you've got other obligations later in life um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that those younger entrepreneurs are 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 worse or um, are you know are somehow less good at dealing with stress or balancing things. Um, I can think of at least a few examples of entrepreneurs that we've invested in in their mid twenties who are doing a far better job, comparatively speaking, in balancing that than I would have been at their at their age. So um, there's not a silver bullet, but you, you with age comes experience and uh, and that allows you to uh, take it and, and also it, it, it comes perspective as I've grown older as an entrepreneur um, 
I I know, for example, that this probably won't be my one silver bullet last venture. When I first start up, started off in entrepreneurship, which was by accident, you know, 12 odd years ago, I had had that um, unrealistic, ide- idealistic expectation that this is so needed by the world that it's going to scale and become huge and it's going to be my life's work and I'm going to have this wonderful legacy to come from it. No, most times that's not true. Most times you you can you can definitely move the needle on things, but you need to give yourself a break and know that it's okay that if if that, that something perhaps doesn't reach the potential that you first hoped for, or indeed that it you know it may be a stepping stone towards something bigger down the line. So you you can be a little bit more because you've stretched over a longer period of time, then you understand how time works a bit better. Mm. And I think that goes to your favor as an entrepreneur sometimes. Um, I always like to counter that, of course, because the the the, the wonderful thing about being an, an entrepreneur in your twenties, in your early twenties, and being just like high on uh, on energy and and the the kind of the fuel of all of that passion and excitement about building something, is you can get shit done really fast mm. because you're not you're not constrained and you're not thinking well you know as I am just now I've got two young kids so I I want to make sure that I safeguard time for them in the week. Now, I would never give up that time for the job that I have because it's so precious and I don't resent mm. spending time with them at all. Uh, but if you're in your 20s and you don't have that obligation, then you're going to win an extra 20 hours in the week or whatever it may be uh, from Monday to Friday that you spend. So, yeah, the question, are, are we better placed as an older entrepreneur to deal with stress? Maybe, but there are certainly some advantages to being um to, to being in your 20s without those constraints and with and also without the learnings to scare you that, that that's a point i really want to um actually focus in on for a second is that mm-hmm. sometimes experience tells you all the reasons why you shouldn't do something mm. many people if they knew what they knew now and like you ask most entrepreneurs that have gone out and built companies and say to them if you knew what you know now would you have gone and done that at that time? You go, no way. Like there's, there's, that's been such a hard route. We didn't have, we had no idea about the regulations to be so hard, so difficult, or we didn't realize that there were going to be so many competitors in this market, or we didn't realize that the tech was going to take three years longer to scale. And I was going to have to be on a 30% salary than what I would normally, you know, there's loads of things that you can only do it if you don't know. So the ignorance is bliss sometimes. Um, but anyway, I'll pause for for thought, Exteen, uh, because I'm kind of going on a tangent with this now. No, no, I, I think it's a very interesting perspective. It's that um, I think it's it, it sort of symbolizes Europe and the US for me. Um, most of the time that I spent in the Europe in, in the US, it was a case of yes, we can, you know, and mm-hmm. and just run with things sometimes without even thinking, and just get it done. Yeah. Um, the drawback with all with all that is the amount of times you bump your head, and um, but that absolute pure joy of just going is is, is enticing. Yeah. And when I brought tried to bring some of that back to the Netherlands, I very quickly realized this 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 also um, no we can't culture, and you <laughs> sort yeah. of all the risks being listed first. You're like. Yeah, but we'll deal with them later. We don't have to deal with them right yeah. now, you know, sort of yeah. thing. And, and so I, I, I get that. What I think is is also interesting is then to think, but how do you? So what kind of what kind of startup teams work well then? Is it ones that where you have 
um, only young people or only older people or a group sort of like a differentiation in age? Mm. Um, well, first, just to double down on your point about geographical cultural differences, definitely in Europe, we have we're not set up for failure. We're setting up for success, which means that we try and de-risk things, which slows us down. Whereas our cousins in North America, but also the experience I have with Indian companies, for example, are far more um, welcoming of failure, which is only positive because it allows us to go faster and iterate things. But that's a separate topic. What makes a good startup team? Well, you you need to have that tenacity. You need to have a somewhat... Um, some some naivety about what it takes to scale the project is good because it doesn't scare you off the sheer scale and the magnitude of what you're trying to do. Uh, usually what we find there needs to be a very strong balance between commercial and technical acumen. So the best teams have got, uh, have, have got a real eye for the market and timing and they understand the timing of a market. So that's the commercial part, having having really that edge where you can almost predict what's or you have a you have your, a feeling of what's about to come in that market so you know how to position your product or service alongside a very tech a very strong technical co-founder who's got a vision on the product or the service because you can have commercial vision about what you want to do but if you don't have a counterpart that's able to actually manifest that that uh, vision into something tangible that and, and the steps that you need to take to to get there, then it's a very rocky road. And we find loads of companies, loads of startups that have got one, but not the other. And, mm. uh, and, and we spend a long time testing teams to, to find out how that balance looks and what the dynamic is between the team. It's, the, it's really um, those factors and also the dynamic part and how the team works together. So coming to your expertise here at XDN around leadership, around team composition and how people interact with each other. Um, we do try and test for that as we're making investment decisions because the highest reason for startup failure is uh, a breakdown in the co-founding team or in the shareholder group. Mm. People mm. just mm. can't communicate and they, and, they're, and, and they don't think to plan for uh, difficult eventualities in the future. So then when you meet it, there's uh, maybe you come at it with two totally different expectations. So we're also looking for teams that have got a vibe and they understand the expectations of one another and they understand the journey that's ahead of them and that they're able to have a, a, a conflict discussion and come to a, 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 a productive outcome of that conversation as opposed to uh, just blowing up the entire company, which mm. I've, I've seen happen. So. I think you also touched on something there called abstraction. In, in or so where people can actually put themselves into someone else's shoes or where they can think about a scenario that they haven't experienced before to be able to come up with something like mitigating factors or something like that. Um, do you guys test for that as well to, to see if people have the cognitive ability to be able to do that zoom out on the one hand and the other hand is to create a mental model of something before they try and apply it in the physical world? Yeah, not so robustly as you describe it there, because what we don't want them to do is predefine a path. Um, mm -hmm. You can plan for eventualities, but then sometimes it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and you systemize mm -hmm. it. So we're not looking for uh, the execution of that ability. We're more looking for the fundamentals uh, that would bring it together. So curiosity, um, when we're doing these interviews with the, the startups, there, there should be a, a heavy weighting of questions coming from their side. 
you know, mm. curiosity about what our experiences of their product or their services, what our expectations in the market are, you know, looking for that input so that they're not coming and just sending a message to us the whole time. If we have a startup or a founder that's sending for most of the, the discussion, that's normally a flag to say that they're set on a certain path. And then if it deviates mm. from that path, they're not going to be able to adapt. So the, the uh, um, so what we're really looking for is, Again, coachability, curiosity, openness, because those are the fundamental elements that will allow the, the founders to uh, adapt to a new set of challenges. And then ultimately, if that does become a, a co-founder dispute or, or, or some, some issue within the team and the, uh, and the discussion within the team members, then they'll also have a higher chance of being able to remedy that together and, and mm. understand it from the other person's perspective. Well, then one last question. Um, if you were to give a recommendation to anybody that would like to become a co-founder or a founder, what should they look for in the people they're going to work for, work with? Complementary skill set, complementary personality traits. So that doesn't mean the same. That means a good um, enough enough difference to create friction for sparks, but not explosions. Uh, that's going to be important. Diversity in the team helps. It does because otherwise you end up in this kind of very narrow brainstorm. Um, so you should be looking for gender and cultural diversity in your co-founders. And ideally someone with some experience who's, um, who's, who's done something before, something hard before. You want to, you want to find a co-founder who's, who's been through the mill a little bit because that tells you something about how they, they handle um, difficult circumstances or scenarios. Uh, I think those. Uh, th this is me speaking from the gut. I'm not coming up with any sort of research that we've done, but that's what I would observe. I'd be looking for, for those traits. I think it's a nice quote. Um, enough friction to cause sparks, but not an explosion. I like that. <laughs> Mark, I would like to thank you for your time and... And it's, it's just, it's, it's, always, it's always great talking to you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure and really interesting. I've learned a lot of things uh, through this chat as well, Dean. So thanks for, for sharing those insights. Appreciate it. Two things stood out to me. Firstly, the most common reason for failure in startups is communication breakdowns. And secondly, there can be too much nurturing. Startups need to learn the hard way. And people tend to appreciate their struggles and successes more. Some skills we can only learn through practice, failure, or trial and error. I think it's important, you know, that spark that's at the beginning of any relationship is also there within businesses. When we work together with others, that spark is where things start. But to get to the magic, we need to hit that spot again and again and again. And that takes hard work, but it's essential. In this day and age, when we work from home a lot, building those relationships at work is hard. But for startups, it's absolutely crucial to their success. Now go out there, be exponential, and do something nice for someone else. You can find us on the web by going to podcast.exponentially.me. We will also find additional media resources and some amazing insights.